our series called God at Work, and we've been um, walking through this and taking a look at some of God's heart for the poor. We've talked about God's heart for people with special needs. We've talked about what God wants to accomplish in us before he goes to work. And so today we're going to wrap this up by talking about the topic of compassion. It's been a consistent theme throughout. One of the things that Jesus ran into in the days of his ministry was uh, the callousness of the heart of the religious leaders. And so he addressed this subject of compassion with one of the stories that he taught. And we're going to take a look at that here in just a few moments. I want to let you know a little preview of where we're going from here. Starting next week, we're going to start a new series called Politics in the Bible. Oh, that'll be interesting. Um, so in any case, hope you come back and hear some of what, um, what we have to learn from the scriptures with regard to that topic. Um, our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 15. Just a little bit of quick background. Again, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day. And then uh, in his quick exchange with them, he sees their response to some of what he values. And then the next thing we know, Jesus launches into these three parables. One of the parables is the story of the lost uh, sheep. One of the stories is the parable of the lost coin. And then he talks about the story of the lost son. And so we're going to read just the first part of that story of the lost son. And then we'll get into that a little bit here more in a few moments. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter one, we'll be reading verses one and two, and then verses 11 through 13. Again, we stand week in and week out because the opinions that we read on Facebook, the opinions we hear at work, those don't matter, right? None of them matter. Whose opinion really matters? What God's opinion is. And how do we know what God's opinion is? He wrote it down. That's right. So we stand up each week to be reminded of that. Here we go. Luke chapter 15, starting at verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now to the parable of the lost son. Here we go. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Okay, so I just want to walk back through these verses again. Uh, and just take a look at what's here. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Let's stop right there for a second. Um, who are the tax collectors? The tax collectors are the IRS corrupted, right? In Jesus' day, they were out, I mean, literally taxing people into poverty, the tax collectors were. And so they were viewed as a very evil group of people um, who were hurting and oppressing the Jewish people on behalf of their Roman overlords. And it says here that those tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. The intent of the text here is to say that they were listening to Jesus' teaching, that they were interested in this idea of repentance of sin, that they were drawn to his message about turning their lives around, about stop living the way that they were living and starting to live in a way that honors God. And it says not only were the tax collectors turning to Jesus, drawing near to him, but so were the sinners. So again, this idea that people who were not living in a way that was God-honoring are now thinking about or evaluating their life in, in light of Jesus' teaching and thinking about turning their life in a different direction. Now, you would think that would be a good thing. Like folks who are tax collectors, who are oppressing people, who are taxing them into poverty, that they're turning their lives around and beginning to make some changes, you would think that everybody would be like, woo, that's great, this is good to see. But that's not the response of the religious class. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. That is, they were upset about what they were seeing, these tax collectors. They're thinking to themselves, who are these people? 
Jesus, what are, you, what are you thinking, having a conversation with, mixing shoulders with, rubbing elbows with these people? No self-respecting Jew would dare do such a thing. And the scriptures say that he, and they say, he receives sinners and even eats with them. That is, he has table fellowship with them. He, he, and by doing that to a Jewish person, that means that they're, he's, he's putting them on the same plane or the same level as himself. And so instead of being happy that sinners were repentant, instead of being glad and celebrating that their lives were being turned around, these religious class, these Pharisees and scribes, they have a long face. They're scornful. They're resentful that Jesus is interacting with these folks. Um, so in response to the reaction of the religious class, Jesus um, tells a story. Um, and it's the story, well, he tells three there, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then finally the lost son. So we're going to skip the first two of those and take a look at the story of the lost son. Look at Luke chapter 15. We'll start there at verse 11. It says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of the two sons came to his father and said, Father, give me my portion of the inheritance. I want uh, my portion of, of the family uh, inheritance. And so uh, I want it now. I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want it now so I can go and spend it and enjoy my life. And the father, you would think, would be like, whoa, hold on here. That's not the way we do. But in Jesus' story, the father went ahead and conceded and said, fine, son, I'll liquidate part of my estate and I'll give you half of my inheritance. And so that's what he did. It says the dad divided his property between his two sons. Now, let me give you just a summation of what happens next, okay? The younger son takes his money, he goes off to Vegas, and he spends all of his money in wild living. And, uh, of course, he, when he gets out of money and, he, and his friends run out, and the next thing you know, he says uh, he finds a way to sustain himself, and that's out slopping pigs. And so he's out slopping pigs, and he's living in a pig pen. He has no money. He reaches the bottom of the barrel, and so when he's at the bottom of the barrel, all of a sudden he comes to his senses, and he thinks to himself, why should I be living here in this pig pen covered in mud, eating what the pigs eat. I could do a whole lot better than this by going back home to my father. And so the younger son is very repentant about what he's done. He has no intention of getting welcomed back into the household. That's the furthest thing from his mind. But he thinks, I can at least become a servant in my father's household, and there I can uh, be able to sustain myself with a decent living and a decent life and make something out of myself. Well, when the, dad comes, when the son comes around the bend and comes back home, the dad sees him. He runs out to greet his son. He throws his arms around him. He hugs his son. He kisses his son. He's so happy that his son, who was lost, is now back home, is found. And so he welcomes him back into the family. And then he calls all the neighbors and he says, hey, look, let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate the fact that what was lost has been found. And so um, they celebrate this, uh, this homecoming. Now, Jesus could have ended the story right there, okay? And in this story, it seems that the character of the younger son represents the tax collectors and represents the sinners, those who had drifted away from the right way of living, those that had uh, gone off and rebelled. And so Jesus is saying here in the story, hey, what a wonderful thing that these tax collectors are coming back, are drawing near to me. What a great thing. And so Jesus could have ended his story there, but remember the point of him telling the story is a reaction to the response of the Pharisees, the response of the religious class to these ones that are coming and drawing near to Jesus. Skip on down to verse 25. It says, Now his older brother, Jesus continuing with the story, now his older brother, who represents the Pharisees and the scribes, was in the field as he came, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. 
And he called one of the servants over and he asked him, what's going on here? What's all this music that I hear? Now I want to stop right there for just a moment and note where the older brother is. He's out where? In the field. He's out working. He's being responsible. He's where you would expect a law-abiding, responsible citizen to be. He's carrying his end of the family load. He's making sure that things are provided for. He's working hard. He's being responsible. Um, And so he comes back dragging in from a hard day's work, and he hears this music going on at the house, and he thinks to himself, what's happening here? Is there some kind of party going on that I didn't know was going to happen? Verse 27, so the servant says to him, well, your brother's come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother's response is, again, to mirror the response of the Pharisees and the scribes, is no way am I going in that house. I'm not going to go in there and be a party to this. I'm not going to go in there and participate in my younger brother coming back home. Um, And then the father comes out and greets his son and invites his son, hey, please come in, please come in. He says a little bit later in verse 22, he says, hey, look, your brother who was lost has now been found. He's returned back home. Um, He's rebelled, he's drifted away, and he's back home. And then the older brother again protests, verse 29, these many years... I have served you faithfully. And he has. He's been out in the field while his younger brother was off in Vegas doing his thing. The older brother's there. He's out in the field. He's working every day. He's being reliable. He's being responsible. He says, I've never disobeyed your commands. I've lived as you've asked me to live. Yet you never gave me a party that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 31. But when this reject of yours, insert my word there, comes home, who has devoured your property, I might add, with prostitutes and with wild living, and you kill the fatted calf for him? Something's wrong here. This picture doesn't look right. Now, it's pretty clear, again, who the, young, who, the old, who the younger brother represents. He represents the tax collectors. He represents the sinners who have drifted away from the church, who have drifted away from a life that's honoring to God, and now are drawing near to Jesus in repentance. And we see also, though, that the older brother represents this religious class, those that have been responsible, those that have been in the church, those that have been following God's uh, decrees and his way for li- righteous living. But Jesus points out in this story that though the older brother was doing what was expected of him on the outside, there was something missing on the inside. I mean, he sees his his younger brother come home in blood and, 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 and on his last leg, right? Just dragging himself up the driveway into town after and covered in mud probably still, dried on and caked on. And something in his heart is not stirred. Jesus points that out, and he says, hey, look, something's missing here. The older brother was decent, he was law-abiding, he was respectful, but something on the inside was missing. Um, He had no pity on his younger brother. His heart was cold. And so this is the point of the story that Jesus tells here. The story of the prodigal son is really the story of the older brother. Because the reason why Jesus tells the story is is because of the response of the Pharisees to those that have drifted away coming back home. Okay, well, that's as far as you want to go with this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's really great. I appreciate that Jesus had this idea of trying to help the religious class see the callous that's on their heart. And he's telling them this story. But I mean, I got 
bills to pay. I got stuff to do this coming week. Um, I got to watch some more of the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, so what difference does any of this make to me with where I'm living? Okay, so help, help me out here. Well, <clears throat> let's talk. That's a really great question. Let's talk about that. What Jesus is pointing out here is that though things can look really good on the outside, that we can be responsible, that we can be law-abiding, that on the outside things can look like we're honoring God, but something can still be missing on the inside. And in a word, what's missing is compassion. That's what's missing from the heart of the Pharisees. That's what's missing from the heart of the scribes, from the heart of these religious class, is compassion. Compassion means to suffer along with someone. One definition that I ran across said, compassion is the ability to identify with another person's need and react in a caring way. What's interesting is that when we read the New Testament, we find the same sentence, the same phrasing over and over and over again. And that phrasing is that Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Jesus had compassion on those who were in need. You see that refrain over and over and over again all through the New Testament, that Jesus had compassion. Jesus is being the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is being God in the flesh, recognized, realized here that God is a God of compassion. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that God is a God of compassion and that every time we pour our heart out to God in pain, God listens because he's a God of compassion to every word of what we pour out to him. God feels every tear that we shed. This is why 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 said, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's a God of compassion. Listen, folks, if you're here this morning and you've never made a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ, to make him your Lord and your Savior, I'm here to tell you that when and if you do, you get some tremendous benefits that come along with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Sure, you get eternal life. That's a wonderful benefit. You get your sins forgiven. They're washed away. They're remembered no more. Again, what a great benefit that we get from that relationship with Jesus. But you also get a connection to the living God of the universe who cares for you who is aware of every tear that you shed, of every struggle, of every heartache that you go through. God is not immune to those things. God is not at a distance from those things. He is a personal God who wraps you up in a father's arms, in loving father's arms, and cares for you. Something for you to think about. You say, but Gordon, I've already made a decision for Jesus. I'm already a follower of Jesus. I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? What does this have to do with my life? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that the Bible doesn't simply stop by reminding us that God is a God of compassion, but rather that God wants for us to be a people of compassion as well. He wants for us to have a heart like he has. Um, he wants for us to be the kind of people who ask the people around us, how are you doing? I cannot tell you how many times it has happened over the course of the last four or five weeks since we've been walking through this series that I've encountered somebody at the cash register wherever I happen to be, or that I've encountered somebody that was working behind a counter or wherever I was walking into, and I just stopped for a minute and I said, how are you doing? Hey, your name's uh, whatever. That's a really nice name. How are things going with your family? And there's been a couple of times that people's eyes just started welling up, and I'm like, wow, didn't know that that was going on right there. But obviously, they've been walking back and forth serving food that day, and going on in their mind were some of the heartache back at home. And here's somebody just for a minute who says, how you doing? How's your family doing? And people have shared with me some pretty, 
pretty serious stuff, and asked for me to pray with them. Um, because I stopped and said, how are you doing? How are things going in your life? And so God wants for us to be a people like that who look around us at the needs of the people in our lives, the people that we interact with every day. God wants for us to be a people who care about the needs and the hurts and the struggles of others. He wants for us to meet those folks with compassion. This is what Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 is talking about when it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Again, compassion is not something you feel toward yourself. It's an outward expression. Clothe yourself with compassion for others. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Proverbs 31 and verses 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. In other words, show compassion for the rights of those who are destitute. Verse 9, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Folks, this is why Corey Ten Boom was moved to want to hide Jewish people from the Nazis. It was because of a heart of compassion. This is why Mother Teresa was moved to want to gather up those broken bodies and dying bodies on the street corners all throughout Calcutta from families that had just dumped these bodies out there of living beings whom God, who matter to God, and scooped them up and took them back to her house and begun a missionary for these kinds of people and for the orphans of her community. This is why people in our church go down and participate with the Acts ministry, helping out with the food pantry and the clothing closet. It's because of compassion, friends. That's what's driving us to do this. Friends, the Bible is very clear that when a person becomes a Christian, that compassion becomes a part of their spiritual DNA. That's part of who we are. It's part of how we operate to be helpers of the helpless, to be defenders of the weak, and to be friends of those in need. And we do it all in the name of Jesus so that he gets the credit, not for us. It's not for us to feel good, although there's a benefit that comes out of that, right? The Lord blesses our lives as we pour our lives out for others. But we do it for God's glory. You say, Gordon, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. I see that the Bible talks about all this kind of stuff. But I got a question for you. My question is, how do I get a heart like that? Because when I drive by and I see some people standing on the street corner and they got their little signs out there, and we can talk about that another day, but we're not going to talk about that today. But anyway, I see these people in need. I see family members of mine that are in need, and I see people like that. Sometimes it's just hard for me to want to have compassion in some of those situations. So how do I have compassion? How do I develop this compassion in me? Is there some sort of Bible study that I need to participate in or some verses that you recommend that I memorize or there's some sermons that you preached in the past that I ought to go check out? I mean, how do I get there? How do I get this kind of heart like Jesus had when he saw crowds and he saw people in need and it says he was moved with compassion? How does that happen? It's a great question. And the Bible does give us an answer, but I'll be quite honest with you, you're probably not going to like the answer. Here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, that is the God of compassion, and the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in our troubles so that, key word, who comforts us in our troubles so that, we can then comfort those who are in affliction, in trouble, with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. What is the Bible telling us here? 
The Bible is telling us that the way God produces compassion in us is by sending trouble our way. Think about that for a minute. That's not good preaching, right? That doesn't excite me. That doesn't get me feeling encouraged. But friends, this is how God does this. In God's economy, how he produces compassion in us is taking us through times of struggle by sending difficulty into our life. Because suffering teaches us to connect with people on the other side of the register who are going through a difficult time. It allows us to stop for a second and say, you know what, my food doesn't really matter right now. How are things going with your family? When we ourselves suffer, we become familiar with what it means to be weak and needy and helpless. Suffering teaches us things about compassion, friends, that we can't learn in a college class, that we can't learn in a Bible study group or from a sermon. Suffering teaches us things about compassion that can only be learned through the doorway of pain and heartache and disappointment and failure. To put it another way, suffering is what God uses to remove from us our heart of stone, our callousness in our heart, and replace it with God's heart for people. Now look here, friends, there are a lot of us today who are hurting. There are a lot of us today who are going through some difficult times in our family, in our finances, in our personal life. A lot of us here today who are in pain. And if you're not, just wait. Because that's the way life works, right? God's uh, ideal for our lives in this world is not for us to be able to scoot through, skate through, unscathed, feel no pain, have no struggle. That's not reality. We don't like the pain. We want it to stop. We sometimes don't understand why God would be allowing this or doing this. Well, I'm here to say to you today, on behalf of Almighty God and from the teaching of His Scriptures, that do not accept some cheap explanation for your struggles. Do not accept some uh, uh, baloney theology that buys into this idea of name it and claim it, get rid of the devil. Let me tell you why God has allowed this suffering in your life. It's because God is not Santa Claus. It's because God is not some genie that you can rub the lamp and he'll just bring blessings into your life and remove all the pain and remove all the struggle from your life. That's not who God is. It's because God has a higher goal, the scriptures teach, for our suffering. God has a higher goal in mind for our struggles than simply giving you and me everything that we want in this life. God's goal in life is to transform us, to become more and more like Christ to be a person who, when we see people with need, we are moved like Christ was, with compassion. To be deep men and women of God who honor him on this earth and glorify him with our life. And there are some areas of Christian growth like true compassion for other people that you and I can never obtain except through the doorway of suffering. It's just the way it is. That's the way it was for Abraham. That's the way it was for Moses. That's the way it was for Ruth. That's the way it was for Esther. That's the way it was for the Apostle Paul and friends. That's the way it was for the Lord Jesus himself. Forget about the nonsense of the prosperity gospel where all God wants for us is our health and our wealth and our success and our good fortune. The Bible says none of that. Rather, the Bible says that sometimes God wants us sick. Ask Job. Rather, sometimes the Bible says that God wants us to fail. Ask David. Rather, sometimes the Bible says that God wants for us to suffer. 
Ask the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because sometimes it's the only way that God can teach us to be the kind of men and women that God has called us to be. And so if you're here today and you're suffering and you're in pain and you're going through deep water in your life, listen to me. Claim God's promise that his grace will be sufficient for you. Know that promise. Claim that promise. And also know that God is doing a work in your life to transform you, to turn you into something so much more than you ever thought your life could be. God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. So please trust him with your suffering. Um, any baseball fans here? A few, yes. Uh, Braves are doing pretty good, right? They're about ready to hit the playoffs. Mm, several years ago, Time Magazine wrote an article about a baseball player, a guy by the name of Mo Vaughn. So if you're a baseball player, you know who Mo Vaughn is. He was a slugger for the uh, Red Sox. And uh, Mo Vaughn uh, one day was out in California playing a game, and he got a call from the Boston Children's Hospital. And their call was on behalf of a young boy. He was just having his 11th birthday on that day, and he was uh, struggling with terminal cancer. Um, and this young boy was a big Mo Vaughn fan. And so the Boston Children's Hospital called Mo Vaughn out in California and said, hey, it's this guy's 11th birthday. He's feeling pretty down about things. Could you, could you take a phone call from him and encourage him? And Mo Vaughn said, sure, I'd be happy to. And so Mo Vaughn had the conversation with a young guy over the phone. His name was Jason Leader. And uh, he talked with Jason over the phone and encouraged him. And then toward the end of the call, he said, hey, Jason, um, you hang in there, young man. He said, I'm going to try to hit you a home run today. And sure enough, you know, one of those fairy tale kind of stories, Mo Vaughn hits one out of the park and hits a home run in honor of Jason uh, that day. Well, Mo Vaughn got back to Boston and he invited Jason out to Fenway Park, this little 11-year-old boy, and Time Magazine reported on this story. They write, the doctors postponed a scheduled round of chemotherapy because they wanted Jason to be strong for that day. His dad said Jason was a little tired, but he didn't seem tired when Mo Vaughn uh, signed some baseballs for him. And he didn't seem tired when Mo grabbed him by the hand and led him around the field. Mo turned to him and said, we're going to go into the locker room to see the guys. And for this visit, the uh, reporters and the news folks weren't allowed to come in. It was just going to be something for Mo and for little Jason. The article continued that someone handed Mo the baseball that he had hit for a home run in California, and he signed it. To Jason, stay strong, my friend, move on. Well, the next year, Jason Leader died, 12 years of age. And on the day of his funeral, move on, took a day off from baseball. And he served as a pallbearer in Jason Leader's funeral. Now, friends, I don't know if move on is a Christian or not, but I do know that what Mo did is what Jesus wants for you and I to do for others. If we're waiting on a church program to be set in place for us to show compassion, friends, that's not what God wants. God says there's people all around you that you and I interact with every day. People who are in need, people who are vulnerable, people who are struggling. And friends, we want to have the heart like Jesus when we interact with those people, that when we see those people, we're moved to say, you know what? I don't, I don't need to go get the church involved. I don't need to go. This is, this is something God put in front of me. 
and I'm going to go, and I'm going to give my life away, and I'm going to show compassion for these that are in need. Friends, it is God's design, it is God's desire that when we see human need, that when we see human suffering, whenever it is, wherever it is, whatever it may be, that we, God's people, go into action. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for just a fresh reminder this morning of how you want our lives to be lived. That, Lord, you want for us to be a people who have a heart like yours that's moved with compassion by the needs of those around us. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would stir in our hearts today, that you would heal the hurts that exist in us, that you would walk with us through the struggles that we may be going through right now, and that we would realize, Lord, that all of this is so that when we engage a hurting world, we would be prepared like Jesus was to show your love, to show your grace, to show your mercy. God, may this church, among the many things that we're known for, may we be known in this community as a church of great compassion. And Lord, it's not because of some church programs that we do. It's because of your people and the way that we conduct ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would just use this time of communion to speak to our hearts. We invite you to do that. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.